is the Beyond the Studio podcast, and you're listening to Season 2, Beyond the Studio West Coast Edition. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist in Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. This conversation includes brief references to experiences of trauma and sexual abuse, so please be mindful as you listen to this episode and check our show notes for references on which parts to skip. This episode is brought to you by Artwork Archive. Artwork Archive is an online platform that makes it easy to manage all aspects of an art career. I know this firsthand because I actually use Artwork Archive to organize and manage my own business. Artwork Archive tracks your artwork, sales, shows, and contacts, automatically builds schedules, and sends you reminders so you're always one step ahead. And for a limited time, Beyond the Studio listeners get 20% off when you get started with their free trial at www.artworkarchive.com beyond. Start connecting with collectors, getting organized, and building your art career now. Today on Beyond the Studio, we're talking with Cynthia Tom, a painter, mixed media, and installation artist who also works with curatorial projects addressing cultural healing and social issues. Uh, We're so grateful to have her on the show today. Cynthia, thank you so much for being here. Would you mind uh, just introducing yourself and your work to us a little bit further? (laughs) Well, thank you, first of all, for recognizing the work I do. I just turned 60 and it's, it's just not, it's refreshing to gain recognition for different paths. And um, I've always been an artist that doesn't follow any particular school of thought, although I describe my work as surrealism, just because it's something you don't see in real life, but it just incorporates all the different art genres. And I didn't go to art school. I went to business school because that's what you did back when I was 20. I've always done found object art because my mom and my father were really poor growing up in San Francisco. And I didn't know we were poor, but we were. So we we were always making art out of found objects, but my parents would never say they were artists or that it was art. It's just what we Mm -hmm. did. So I started painting probably in my 30s. And it just came roaring out of me. And it was always about women. And it was always about women owning their power because that was, I guess that was just me trying to tell myself to do that. And over 30 years later, I'm still doing the same. I still have the same purpose, the same goal Mm -hmm. um, and do curatorial projects, like you said, to bring women and men artists, but women artists along for the ride. And I am Chinese American, fourth generation San Franciscan. Although I don't live in San Francisco anymore, I can't afford it. I live close by and a lot of my work is informed by, I guess, the trials, tribulations and the traumas of of women of color. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Oh, and I run a program called A Place of Our Own when I can raise the money. Or we're trying to start as an organization that helps heal women by using art making and meditation. 
Yeah, we're really excited to get more into that work too. But to start, could you tell us a little more about your early creative journey? And you mentioned starting to paint in your 30s. So up until that time, what kind of work were you doing? And how did you kind of find yourself into painting and art as more of a career path? You know, it's funny. I didn't think to go to art school. I didn't think I was an artist, but we were always making things in my house. We didn't go out and buy presents. We had to make them. And a lot of our neighbors knew to give us their junk, like their broken jewelry, their broken pottery. For us, that was like Christmas <laughs> when people would hang stuff on our gate. And uh, and then we'd just make art out of it by um, using um, baker's clay, which was flour and salt and water. And we would stick jewelry in it and make little people or uh, for Christmas, everybody's gifts. I never thought about this, but everybody's gifts were highly decorated with mixed media. You know, <laughs> I didn't know it was mixed media back uh -huh. then, but it was, you know, the stuff in my mom's junk box. In school, I took art classes and I didn't know what to paint because that's all they taught you was mm -hmm. painting. So I painted sunrises and sunsets, which were the same thing. So I thought it was really boring. I thought art was boring. I didn't know what I was doing was art. And then I discovered two stores, actually in San Francisco. One is General Bead down on Minna Street, which has every kind of jewelry component you could think of. And the other one was, oh, God, I'm blanking, Scrap. Oh, yeah. Over in Bayview Hunters Point area, which is scroungers, reuse, something. But it's, it's highly conscious people and companies that give all their leftovers and things they don't want to this big warehouse. And you can go in there and just find all kinds of cool materials. So I started making jewelry with this stuff. And then I found out people wanted to buy it. So I quit my, I was a pharmaceutical rep, thank God, because that's why, well, I could tell you more about that later, but that's why I have been able to be laid off a million times and still be okay and pay my rent. Mm -hmm. I had a job and I saved a ton of money and I saved every art sale I ever made. I saved that as well. But I did jewelry. I was a street artist. I did the street festivals for a while in my 20s. I couldn't do it now because it's so physically grueling. And then there was one day I moved into this house and the people next door were playing James Taylor and Carly Simon <laughs> so loud that I had to move <laughs> like at 11 o'clock at night. And I found out from my landlady that that's they're having problems with the neighbors next door. So the only thing I had was these bookshelves, these unpainted wood bookshelves and some paint laying around. And I just started painting on them, um, these shapes of women. And up till then, I hadn't really painted like that. And it just, I just never stopped after that. I just keep painting clothing and women and in, in surreal or uh, outrageous landscapes or unreal landscapes. But lately I've been doing big installations and little tiny boxes full of mixed media found objects so I'm going back to that found object love so that's what led up to the painting mm -hmm. I feel like there's something so powerful about being able to go back to kind of your original form of making art because as a kid you don't really think about it being art you're like I'm just being creative I'm just putting things together and this is a form of of play yeah and exactly. then when you're able to revisit it later you see just how much that creative work really did influence who you are as an artist. Yes. <laughs> well, and as a person too, I'm, uh, I'm going to try to write a book on found object, the philosophy, because it's the way that you live your life as well. It's learning to see things and opportunities where no one else sees them. And it's, it's a whole way of living. It's not just art making, but it's a whole way of, of being able to navigate 
Mm, I love that. Training yourself to view the potential and everything. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, and to look at things. I always, I did jewelry for a while with found objects. And I used to, there was a really high-end store in, I think it's called Westfield Shopping Mall now. The one. Oh, sure. Like at Fifth and Market. And it was the people, the people that owned the shopping center had this incredible designer store with all local designers. And I used to do all the jewelry, but I made jewelry out of ping pong balls and broken glass and broken beer bottles. And, <laughs> and the, the designers that were really snobby would say they liked it until they realized the materials it was made out of. But I just thought, well, it's too late now. You're already at my yeah. <laughs> I had always been uh, what I refer to as adopting strays, which is like finding random furniture <laughs> and items that I'm like, I'm going to take it oh, in and, right. and take care of it. And of course, my husband is always like, stop bringing junk into our house. This is a mess. And I'm like, I'm giving it a better home. So I made this whole video project about it, about how these, uh, like this chair and this table finally found the home that they had always been looking for. And I was like, see, this is how I envision it. And sometimes that argument works, not always. But I like, I like the idea that these found objects can find a home with you and with whatever you're, you're putting them to use for. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. It's new love. And yeah, my ex-husband and I used to have those arguments all the time. (laughs) But my new partner, my new honey, he's a found object artist, which is really hard for us because we both collect stuff. So I I haven't been collecting so much, though. But there's joy in treasure hunting. And my mom, who just passed, she was 92. Up till the end, she loved looking through people's trash (laughs) and making things. She was making stuff right up till she passed away. Like collages and things. So resourcefulness is in your genes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Making it work. Which is also just the artist way. We're all trying to find a way to make it make it work. Yeah. So around this time, as you were starting to sell jewelry and kind of rediscover your passion for creativity, were you working other jobs? How were you kind of sustaining yourself at that time? And what did, what did that period in your 30s look like? I was really lucky back then. That was the 80s and the 90s. And pharmaceutical companies, I don't know if they were always horribly evil, but I, I wouldn't work for one now. Mm-hmm. But back then we were, we were hired um, because of our intellect. Now they don't necessarily hire people for that, but it was a respectable job and the doctors looked forward to seeing us and, and they always liked to talk about whatever art I was making. So that's how I sustained myself. And, but I kept quitting the job to go be a street artist or to go just do the art. And I had a, got a studio out at Hunter's Point Shipyard, which I love. Oh, yeah. It was so nice out there. Yeah. And I was out there for 15 years. That's where Nicole is at. That's where her studio yeah, is. true. Is it really? Uh-huh. I moved out right when they tore down all those houses where they've built all the new houses now mm-hmm. over to 1890 Bryant. And I thought my customers would come with me because I used to sell a ton of work and they didn't come with me. Ugh. Oh, wow. Uh, and I've actually done open studios a couple times in the shipyard, and they're like, oh, my God, we haven't seen you in years. They didn't follow me. Uh, so it's been hard since I moved out. And so it sounds like this job for you is something that gave you a certain level of flexibility to be able to come back to it whenever you needed to, but also be able to take time for your own creative work um, and let that be the focus at some points. 
you know, I didn't know it was going to be. And I, I just feel like I'm very spiritual and I just feel like I was given that path to be able to achieve what I'm doing now. Every time I left, I didn't know I was going to be able to come back. But every time I came back, the job got better. Like It was a new company or um, at one point I had an amazing group of women I worked with and one kind of became my like a spiritual guru, almost our, our director. And every time I went back, the pay went way up. So it was good. I left. So I was very, very fortunate. I mean, it wasn't huge amounts of money. And, and actually, nowadays in San Francisco, if I made that same amount, I'd be still lower middle income. Mm-hmm. But I, I was wise and really put the money away. I lived pretty frugally. But it, it's a hard life being a street artist and going out and showing your work outdoors. It is really grueling. And this is back when, before the internet, before any kind of digital anything. So if you wanted to promote your work, you had to send physical photographs you had to have them taken developed and then sent um like i had a rep in los angeles that was doing really well but it was hard to keep in touch and it, and i like to just do one individual thing and i realized i wasn't a designer because i could, i didn't want to find something that sold and then make a hundred of them i just wanted to make one and then i was bored so promoting that isn't as easy um, back then now you could do you can promote anything and with Etsy, wow. And I and the funny thing is I don't even take advantage of that. And I want to spend the time and try to work with online programs that could help sell work. But I get so caught up in helping, you know, all my social justice stuff and women's healing. I'm trying to pull back more now and not volunteer pretty much at all except for a place of her own. Because I have to build up my means of income again. I got laid off, I think, four or five times from the pharmaceutical industry. And now they're mm. they're pathetic, actually. I don't want to go back in even if they would take me. And I'm probably too old now. But I, And also, it's just not fun anymore. They, they oversold. They were too hard sell on the doctors. And the doctor's offices just hate them now. And I would be embarrassed. So I'm not sure what to do. Turning 60, I have a lot of skills. Like right now I'm writing the grant. I'm jumping ahead, so I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, well, an artist's lives are never so linear either. So I think it helps to kind of establish a timeline and just get a sense for what your creative background has been. But I think it's been so much more interesting to hear about the cycles of artists' lives and how things (laughs) kind of come up and then recede and hop around. And I think it's more of a web than it is sequential timeline. I am so grateful to you guys for reaching out to me and letting what I do resonate with what you're thinking, because I'm helping like Marin Open Studios. I've helped San Francisco Open Studios. I helped Asian American Women Artists Association and everybody wants to help emerging artists or the youth or the young artists. And I'm like, you know, some of us who've been around a long time doesn't mean we have easygoing careers. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm an emerging artist all over again, partly because I had some knee injuries that kind of kept me in the background. I had to stop attending things. When I moved out of the city, it became very hard to go in and be seen and be part of the, the scene. And so I don't get calls to be in shows. I don't get what I used to when I was around more. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm starting out all over again. And there's not that many people doing surrealism the way I'm doing it, I think. Um, in Europe, there is more, but not here, not in San Francisco. So I always wish 
I could claim that emerging artist thing again. <laughs> yeah, because it's almost like a continual process of reinventing yourself over and over. And that's exactly a little bit of what being an artist is, but also the the career path and nothing is ever going to be stable and steady forever. So I think there's always a level of creativity that it takes to approach your own life with and, and the willingness to step out of your comfort zone too, and to be able yes. to start over. And I think all of that takes a great deal of courage and creativity. And so it's been exciting to talk with artists at all stages of life and career and just to hear how they're navigating through it um, and the ways that they are in really creative and really different ways approaching their own life and and really realizing the kinds of projects and the work that they want to do that's most meaningful. Yeah. And I feel like if there's anything that I've learned from doing this podcast and talking to people at all different stages of their quote unquote careers is that it it never really stops being hard and it never stops being a challenge. It's just different kinds of hardships and and different types of challenges. And like each experience, you kind of learn from it a little bit and you move forward with that. But you're always going to hit new roadblocks and and find new struggles. Like an example, last year, uh, so I sell through Etsy a lot. And last year oh, I made okay. a huge chunk of my income through the Etsy wholesale platform where they get you connected with different retail stores. And then earlier this oh, wow. year, they said, hey, we're going to stop doing Etsy wholesale. Uh, it's not really where a majority of the transactions are happening on Etsy. And you know, oh, we'll make gosh. sure you can stay connected with the people that found you through us, but we're, we're just not going to have that platform anymore. And I'm thinking like, wow. okay, that was like a third of my income last year. How am I supposed to make that up this year? And lo and behold, I was able to find through through other friends that had that same realization of like, what do we do now? Um, find other wholesale platforms <laughs> and hopefully that'll you know work out this year. But even year to wow. year, like it, it always looks a little bit different. And the ways that you make your money and the ways that you spend your time, it, it fluctuates so much depending on whatever is going on in the world and your world and, and your work. Absolutely. What do you what do you make? Or what do you sell? So I am a fiber artist and an illustrator. So I do a lot of illustrated goods on like uh. shirts and prints and uh, bags and bandanas and things. And then uh, my fiber art, it's all these little sculptural plants made out of this uh, recycled felt. I make yeah, a lot yeah. of little mushrooms and little succulents and little flowers and whatnot. Oh. And cat Very toys. Nice. Yeah. Those are some of my biggest sellers. <laughs> that sounds lovely it's fun it, it can I resonated with what you were saying before of like doing the same thing over and over again getting boring because <laughs> I'm right now entering my my holiday season where I'm just making holiday ornaments nonstop. and I was telling Nicole like <laughs> I'll probably make roughly a thousand ornaments and oh I have a bunch God. of different designs but that's a lot of the same stuff over and over again and it totally does get redundant and I have had to find other ways to like satisfy my need to make new stuff so it, right there's always something that you're figuring out I'm relating to what you did because I had stores that were selling the hell out not the hell out of my stuff but enough to mm. make me happy but of course they go out of business so then you got nothing and um, at one point I started getting the LA market kind of just a little bit and I'm just talking about like $500 a month which was a lot back then. Well, even now it's a lot, but then they had the, um, the riots, 
the LA riots and my rep went out of business because she got hurt and la, 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 la. Now I'm 60, I'm taking stock and I'm like, you know, I thought if you just fill up the resume that it will lead to bigger and better things. And, but that's not true necessarily. I used to sell a lot of paintings, especially at the shipyard on Saturday, open studios, like people would come in and they, it's like a flurry. Mm. <laughs> and I, I haven't seen that in a long time <laughs> to sell out every year. And now I don't, mm. and, and I'm grappling with, I would like to give my work at lower prices just because I have so much of it. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll, people can do part trade or something. I don't know. I feel like pricing your work is always really hard because you want to price it what you're worth and you don't want to screw up the entire market for everyone saying like, oh, you can get these giant, beautiful pieces for so cheap. But you also have to move the artwork and and make mm-hmm. money. And, you you know, it's just it's taking money away from you if it's just sitting, taking up space. Yeah. Yeah. It's costing money. It's taking yeah. up space. Yeah, I I remember in the in the Marie Kondo book where it's the life changing magic of tidying up. She talks about <laughs> how when you keep things in storage, it's it's taking away right. space and it's taking away money from you. Because even if like even if you totally own your space, it still is taking up residency within that space. And that's the space that you could use for something else. And I was like, okay, no more storage. I I can't afford it. (laughs) I just read that book too, which is why I want to move stuff. (laughs) It's great. Now I'm in the habit of being like, thank you, shoes, for like keeping me, keeping me dry as I walk around. (laughs) Uh, Because she talks about, Nicole, if you haven't read it, she talks a lot about like thanking your items and and showing gratitude to the things (laughs) that, that provide, you know, whatever for you. I won't go into that because that book has nothing to do with art. Uh, <laughs> um, but I wanted to ask what it is like transitioning through these different phases, like transitioning into, especially now, a very online world. How did you kind of tackle that? I'm actually incredibly grateful for being able to do pretty much everything online and the phone. Oh, my God. And Instagram. I have to be careful that I'm not envious of of new artists who have these platforms already, you know, cause we went 20, 30 years without that mm-hmm. or 20 years without, I'm having a harder and harder time learning. I used to be able to, to figure out websites really fast and now I'm having a harder time with it. Uh, I have to maintain my website and a place of our own's website, but it's all good. I mean, to me, it's all good. It all works. It's frustrating for me because a lot of the people that, are helping me or that I, you know, friends or peers, a lot of women that I work with over 50 don't want to touch or learn any technology. So I end up being the one that has to figure it out, Mm. um, which is a shame. And I, and I want to take more advantage of it too. And I know people say there's too much coming at you and I just say, well, filter it. And I think being able to make product online, like society six or, um, mm-hmm. was it, did it used to be cafe press or something like that? I think those are amazing tools. I just haven't, I need to get, make time to put my stuff up on there. Yeah. Are you still making or, and selling jewelry or objects as part of your current practice? Well, I still have all my beads and all the gemstones and all the stuff that I had. Um, when I was just doing the jewelry, I kept pretty much everything. I gotten rid of certain things, but I still have a lot. And I want to do all that, but then I'm like, well, how am I going to sell it? And I haven't even 
tried Etsy. I looked at it and what I'm doing with my life now is not, I used to book it to the nth degree. Like any free moment you had, you were booked to work on something or do something. And I lost myself running Asian American Women Artists Association. And uh, from 2006 till I just retired as the board president since 2006. Mm. It's because no one else really wanted to do it. And I saw the value of it. And to me, it's a social justice thing because there's very little representation of women of color in art institutions and in academia. So that's why that was my focus with them for a long time. But I got really sick. And I think that's, you know, the universe's way of getting it. It's like smacking you. It's like, no, you need to turn right. So I am trying to embrace that. I'm keeping a place of her own because that does pay money if I can raise money. And I've watched it change. I mean, it's changed me. It's changed my, now my close friends, women who've gone through it. It's, it's an amazing dialogue. It's mainly about looking at family patterns and, and historical patterns. Like what was your family doing when they decided to leave their, your home country? And a lot of times the women find that there's some deep political trauma that their family was escaping from and it twists your family up. Mm. So a lot of the abuse is just coping mechanisms that are unquestioned. I'm going off on a tangent again. I'm sorry, you guys. No, oh, we've no, you're mentioned fine. a place of her own a couple times. Um, would you like to tell us a little more about that organization and the origins of it? Sure. So when I was running Asian American Women Art Association, I pitched a curatorial idea to uh, the De Young Museum. They had an artisan residency there, and it was called The Place of Her Own. And I was just going to ask women to, I invited nine people, artists, to answer the question, if you had a place of your own, what would it be? And what ended up happening is most of them just let loose all the trauma and abuse and incest, rape. I mean, it was really frightening that women that I knew as peers, as Asian American women artists, had all this trauma in their background. Mm-hmm. And then my, I myself, in my t- early 20s, I was dating a guy that was violent. And, and then I saw that my, some of my aunts and uncles were with violent spouses, male or female. And even my cousins, some of them were with dominant male and female um, partners. So I was trying to figure out where I got this from because my parents never argued. And I really realized, I found out that my mom's mother was sold to my grandfather and that my mother was sold. He sold her for opium from ages six to 12. He would send her to go get his opium because he didn't have any money and he traded her for it. And my mom so well-adjusted, she just told me all this and we put them into art shows. We put this stuff into art exhibits. Um, and that's kind of what started my social justice um, jump off point for and my feminism really came out when I found all this stuff out. Mm-hmm. And I think it helped my mom because she never talked to her brothers and sisters about it, her six brothers and sisters. So no one in the family knew, but we put it up on the wall with I did paintings of my grandmother and I put up picture photos of my mom and her siblings. And then I put my mom's essays on the wall that were telling the story. And the San Francisco Arts Commission had a gallery in Chinatown. And that was the first time we put it up. And my mom and I stood in the back of the gallery and she watched. Not all the relatives came, even though they lived locally, but some came. So I think, and and my brothers. So in her heart, she knew that people looked 
read it. No one said anything to her, but she felt vindicated. Mm -hmm. And so that really sent me, that exploded my path around feminism and social justice. And then that fed into the A Place of Her Own a couple of years later when I did this residency. It was, it was amazing. So a few, it took quite a handful of years. I just did exhibitions around that. But eventually I met this healer, her name's Trinity Ordona, and she said this needed to be a bigger healing workshop series. So we ended up with a six-month series. It's four months of talking, a discussion, talking about family patterns, beliefs that hold you back. And I have little art projects built into each one of those. And then we start working towards aspirations, a lot of group discussion. And this is like 12 to 15 women talks because it's so intense um, discussion-wise that to have more people would dilute it. But things like some of the meditations, like the aspirations, we have them actually embroider aspirations on their pillow. So they do embroidery in public or wherever they want to do it. Mm -hmm. And they talk about their aspirations. It's like a prop for discussion. As you know, art is good at that. I do something called love letters to myself, where we have them actually write something loving to themselves as a little girl, really hard for these women. <laughs> I didn't know how hard it was going to be. This yeah. was a, a new thing I've had them do. And then I help them do, then we do, um, have them do a collage with vintage images of them as a little girl. And they write the love letter to themselves. It's a mixed media collage. And everything we do is found object in mixed media. So women don't have to be artists to go through this. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, so recently I just moved it outside of Asian American Women Artists Association for funding purposes and because it's for all women. But uh, every year I have to raise the money. Um, we just do it every other year if I can raise enough money. Because most of the women that take the class can't afford it. But it's been an amazing journey. And then it culminates in an art exhibition. And the women learn to, to speak about their process, talk about their art piece. And, and we actually have ways for the audience to go through the thought process too, like looking at family patterns, things like that. And when I talk about family patterns, we're talking about colonization, forced migration, um, even genocide, like things going a little bit further back than your grandparents, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've been getting money, hopefully, knock on wood, from the San Francisco Arts Commission again, California Arts Council, and Zellerbach. And I would love to be able to get money from mental health services, but we're not therapists. We're not doing anything traditional. And it's hard to convince people to give you money when you're pioneering something, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. when you're doing things outside of the box because they don't understand. Yeah. I keep hoping it's a higher calling so that that higher calling will make sure that we get funded. <laughs> yeah. It definitely sounds like it is. I mean, I feel like we really can't underestimate the power of art as a tool of healing. We've all gone through some rough stuff, especially when it's something so personal that you you don't know how to talk about or even feel comfortable talking yeah. about, but like being able to put those feelings and, and those experiences into an art piece, it, it's like your own way of taking control over your experiences and, and finding a way to process them. And that's yeah. necessary for all of us. One of the things that we teach, and I learned a lot of it from my boyfriend, who's really spiritual, but that first of all, True, true artists have to go through some really tough stuff to become very good artists because it's all, it's all teaching. Like all the things that you face is all the teaching and 
and it's guidance for what you're supposed to be doing with your art. Because I really do feel like your art is coming from something way beyond you. And no matter what it is, whether you're making a little mushroom or a little Christmas ornament, or you're making a big art installation, it's going to affect somebody's emotions in a positive way. And I think that's what artists are here to do, at least the kind of art that I like to do. Yeah, I find it interesting that you've kind of come to this work through the angle of the arts or that it started out as a proposed project through an artist residency. And I wonder if you if you knew that it would grow to have such a larger meaning beyond that, that it would be so become so rooted in social justice and in if you had ever had any I suppose, like interest or, or thought about um, art as therapy, or if that's something that it just sort of become became this mode for healing, and that I mean, now it's they seem so woven together that um, it's mm-hmm. it is really unique and um, interesting to hear you talk about the role and relationship between the practice of making the art and exhibiting. Um, and processing in that way, but I'm I'm curious if that was sort of the vision you had for it all along, coming into it from more of the artist perspective. Mm-hmm. That's a really great question. I feel like I fed it to you so I could give you this answer. <laughs> One of the things that we uh, that I teach at place is how to like ground yourself so you actually imagine roots coming out of your hips and your feet and going into Mother Earth, and you open up the top of your head and you allow gold energy and which is ideas and intuition to come in because that's will inform your art so the intuition is a really powerful place to always come from and that's like learning how to work with found object media encourages that but the reason it's funny um when i when i did this artist in residency thing in that d at the de young this is in 2009 somehow i had the presence of mind to get the website a place of to buy that domain name. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was gonna do with it. And actually AWA, which is Asian American Women Art Association, largely they weren't that into, into what I was doing. Something in me knew I had to do this and I had to kind of fight for it, fight for funding and, and to get help because it's hard to do things on your own. And now, now we're more like an organization and I'm hoping we're gonna spin off into a nonprofit, but I'm letting that like sitting back and intuitively trying to let that evolve and not push my agenda. I don't want it to be my agenda. It's about trusting that knowing sense, like something you two, something in you two met each other, resonated with each other, and now you're acting on your gut instinct. And it's exciting what you're doing. A lot of us think we just follow this prescribed path that we think we're supposed to be on, but then we keep missing what we're supposed to be doing. Our bodies have a way of telling us to to change directions if we don't listen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I always knew, but it wasn't defined. I, as a visual artist, I'm not I'm not a terribly verbal person, although I've had to be to write grants and to write about what I do, mm-hmm. but I don't think in words necessarily. So sometimes I'm really excited when someone puts words to how I'm feeling. Yeah, and that's I think that's there's something so important about that too just learning to really listen to your own voice and trust your intuition and and your instincts and I think that's something you have to really train yourself in because we all like you said have this this sense of maybe 
where to go next or what to do, but we just can't see all the steps in front of us to know how it's going to play out. And yeah. I think that's why it's always exciting talking to artists because they're willing to to follow that train of thought and just see where it leads and be able to, you know, trust in their own resourcefulness and their own vision or the vision of others and to to just take one step at a time to realize those things and to be open to where they're going to lead. I wanted to ask too, um, the description that you gave about that initially was just so reminiscent of your own paintings. Uh, How would you describe the relationship between your personal work um, and the work that you're doing with A Place of Her Own? I think they're inseparable in some ways, which is kind of an awkward place in some ways. Place becomes a nonprofit, then where does my artwork separate from that? Or I don't know. It's always been about women, though. I don't know where that came from, but it's always, well, I do know some of it, but it's always been about women. I have a theory that it has to do with my female ancestors. I actually work with a beautiful um, intuitive energy healer. Her name's Amy Lamb, and she's in San Francisco. She does a lot of work in the the refugee and new immigrant community, but she also discovered her and gave honor to her voice about seeing things and, and understanding things. And she helped me understand my connection to my female ancestors. And she helped me actually cut, I know this sounds crazy, but we, I was giving so much to, through Asian American Women Art Association or through anybody that asked me that I was making myself sick the last probably five years just mm. constantly sick. And then my knee um, gave out and that's still slightly ongoing saga, but it's doing a much better now. Um, but it's taught me to sit back. We sat at the beach and I went to her for a session and she said she saw like thousands and hundreds of female ancestors behind me and that they were pulling on me. And I thought that was really interesting because I felt this huge responsibility for everybody. Mm-hmm. I've since then also realized that my mom taught me her big sister. I call it the big sister pattern or syndrome where you have to take care of everybody because that was her thing. She had to take care of her brothers and sisters. So she had me taking care of my brothers. But when she passed, I felt like I could let some of that go. And I you know, just had that re- realization and I started to let my brothers support me, which they've been doing you know, with kindness and, gen- and support, you know, just saying nice things. So anyway, with Amy, she said, well, why don't we change the vibration and change your ancestors to joy? So she just was sitting on the beach and she said, look, their clothing's changing, their expressions are changing. And when she described them, it sounded like all the paintings I've ever done because the women are tend to be dressed in bright, really interesting dresses. And I never knew why I did that, but that maybe explained it. And then she said, look, they're walking towards the ocean. They don't need to hold you down anymore. And then she asked them to come back and take care of me and do something for me. And that's kind of how we left it. And it's, it's, it lightened my load a lot. That's such a beautiful visualization. And how fascinating that on maybe some deeply subconscious <laughs> level, this type of image had been appearing in your paintings for many years without realizing it. Yeah. Um, it was weird when she was saying that. I kept seeing all the paintings I've done over the decades. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, oh my God, that's the paintings. So that, yeah. Well, just such a reminder too that all of these things are so woven together and that our 
our spiritual, our physical, our mental health are all so integrated. And I feel like that's something that's often neglected or it's not as widely talked about. I think especially just within the culture we yeah. live that's so focused on work and achievements and the individual. And yeah. I feel like Amanda and I talk about this a lot, just trying to create a better balance for ourselves and how it feels so countercultural and it's so hard to do when, you know, <laughs> working hard is in your nature. But I think it's such a helpful reminder that you can't separate these things. And I suppose it's good that this term of self-care is now so much a part of the the kind of mainstream conversation. But just hearing you talk about the need to really step back and look inward and take care of yourself remi- reminds me of so many people we've talked to that are, um, I mean, I think everyone really could benefit from, from that, but especially those that work within a space of social justice or working with nonprofits or social activism or just any sort of vein of work where it requires so much of yourself. And I think people in that realm tend to be so giving of themselves that there's such a greater need to refuel that and fill that up. And so I I hope that this is motivating for people listening because I feel like I've heard your story echoed in many others who are working in that realm and it can lead to not being sustainable because it requires such a greater level of care on an individual level. I think what we were drawn to about your work too in particular and how you're working you know, individually as an artist, but also how your practice is so integrated with with women and healing is that there is this spiritual component to it, that there is this recognition that um, there's an interconnectedness to everything. And I feel like that's something that is unique that's not often incorporated into that type of work. You know, I appreciate you saying that because I consciously made a decision this year even my posts on Instagram and Facebook, and even when I was teaching a place of our own, and it's walking a fine line because people get, I, I, I'm not into religion at all. It's about spirituality for me and that there is something bigger than us. You take a risk when you say those things. I even got a little bit of pushback with the place of our own. Like one of the students thought it was too woo-woo. And I'm like, that's cool. That's fine. You know, I'm just telling you my <laughs> truth and you don't have to take it. I almost want to teach a workshop in this or, or do a retreat in this, but it's all the people that, especially artists that do work where their, their work is to talk about community and to share what's going on in community. I could call it social justice or whatever, or that volunteer for nonprofits or work for nonprofits. I have so many friends that I'd like to get to know better, but they work so hard. They're sick so much of the time. Mm. And um, I like to use the metaphor of that, you know, when the plane's dropping and the masks come down, you're supposed to put the oxygen on yourself first. Otherwise, you'll pass out. You can't take care of anybody else. And I think it's the exact same thing. And I, I would love to see retreats for not to teach them more, but just to teach them or just to say thank you for all the people that are that work so hard for community. And, and they will get sick. I know, there's just no way around it. You will get hurt. Something will happen to your body because your body starts screaming at you. And, I, you know, it's like learn from me because that's what happened to me. So you, you're hitting the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's so easy to underestimate your stress levels and your workload can do for mm-hmm. your mind and your body. 
And I've I've talked about this on previous episodes before, but last year my husband had to have a sit down with me where he's like, you are burning the candle at both, both ends. You are going to burn mm-hmm. out and you're useless if you're burnt out. Like what's the point of working so hard if you're not working towards the lifestyle that you want and the life that you want to live and you're you're burning all your energy on things that aren't giving you energy back. And that yeah. was incredibly convicting and really eye-opening. And like I started to incorporate a meditation practice into my life. And it in the past I had always tried, but it just felt weird and it I didn't feel like I was yeah. getting anything out of it. And then I finally found what worked for me because uh, it's you know it's so personal it's different for everybody and I had taken a month off from meditating and and like journaling and I felt so unbalanced in that time like I didn't have a clear vision of what I wanted and what I needed and already I have a pretty short short fuse and jump to overwhelm and stress and frustration really quickly. But when I I take time to meditate and to care for my mental and physical and emotional needs, it's so much easier to handle all the stresses that comes with trying to be a functioning artist in society (laughs) and human. You know, I've had boyfriends and husbands say that to me over and over again, but you just, when you're younger, I guess you just, you have so many things you want to do. But if it becomes hip to take care of yourself, like even meditation with place of our own, we don't spend, we don't tell you to sit and deep breathe and all that for more than like three seconds. But what we have you do is like embroidering could be very meditative Mm because it's a repetitive thing. Art making can be meditative as long as you let yourself go there. Yeah. And then don't schedule things every day. I'm lucky right now because I don't, well, I'm lucky and, but I need a job. So I try not to schedule mm-hmm. const- things every day. I try to schedule yeah. something every other day. So I have a down day where, because things always come up. Things always come up. Although right now with this grant I'm writing, it just, it's been two, it's a, two weeks of insane hours, but it's almost done. But that's the, there's a San Francisco Arts Commission grant for social justice that I'm working on for a place of our own. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, I'm trying to channel. It's like, okay, if I'm supposed to be doing this program, help me get the words out of me and the budget and the lovely things. These women just came out of nowhere and they're helping me. Like one woman who's an artist, I didn't know she loved doing budgets. I've known her for, <laughs> I think, eight years. <laughs> so she spent days on on what we're working on. And um, then another woman, I just did Dia de los Muertos at SoMarts. Mm-hmm. And um, if you haven't seen that, you should go. That it's life-size installations, multicultural, amazing, miraculous. I had my. It's called the the Hungry Ghost. It's an installation about me encouraging people to understand their historical family patterns. And I had my family patterns written on the wall there. I've gotten some amazing conversations with people. People in tears. <laughs> I, I get inspired by that. Yeah. But this woman came up to me who I didn't know was already a Facebook friend and she was on my email and she said she helped me. And she's an amazing, she helped me rewrite the grant uh, just like that. So wow. I really believe there's miracles going on. <laughs> yeah. And a good reminder just to open yourself up to that type of help from your community that it's not something you have to go out alone and feel like we're reminding ourselves of that every day it's hard to not feel like you have to take the burden of everything on 
um, entirely yourself. Well, because you'll get sick. Yeah. You will get sick. I know Nicole and I are both, or at least we better both be, super grateful to have each (laughs) other for this podcast. Yeah, I'm (laughs) a little grateful. Her strengths are exactly (laughs) where all of my weaknesses are. Like, I feel like we balance each other out so much, and I couldn't imagine trying to do this project by myself. Mm -hmm. I don't think we'd have a podcast at all, but... It's really, there's something so powerful about collaborating with your community and sharing the the weight together, um, especially when you're able to have a community where I'm really terrible at getting to emails on time, but Nicole's pretty good at it. And like, <laughs> I, I happen to be married to an audio engineer, so doing the recording wow. and editing work is really helpful on my side because I can, you know, anytime I hit a struggle, which is every episode but every time I hit some weird problem I'm like hey uh can you uh come take a look at this and he's like oh yes now everything is perfectly level and clear Mm -hmm. well it's synchronistic that you guys met each other so you're just following your what you're supposed to be doing when you do that it gets easy and that's something I'm trying to practice is if something's a little hard it doesn't mean you have to change everything if you just turn a little to the right will it get easy then go that way. Instead of if something's not working, it's not working. So I I just read a little newsletter. It says um, epiphanies of a newly minted 60 year old. And one of them is that (laughs) to look for the, look for the easy path. Another one is, um, and this is from, what's her name? I can't remember the author, but um, it's let me disappoint you. So I'm learning to just, if something's not right for me to be okay with disappointing other people, because it sends terror into my heart when I'm ha- going to disappoint people, but I just have to yeah. and not, you know, where, so it's not my detriment. Mm-hmm. So that's a new thing. I'm, it's all practice though. It all takes practice. Yeah. And being okay with disappointing people. It just has to be okay. Yeah. Cause being women, we're taught not to disappoint anybody. True. Mm-hmm. Are there any other experiences you've had that we haven't talked about that have been really impactful for you in your work or career? There's probably been lots. Something that's been interesting lately, and I guess it's because I'm just finally opening myself up to it. Like I, I'm in two books, two academic textbooks, and I didn't really think about that before. So I grew up in a family that was, they weren't mean, but nobody said anything. So one of my hungry ghosts, which is a term I use in a place for own, is that mm-hmm. I don't believe in my value quite often. So then you dismiss things that people say to you, or I feel like my art's not doing anything, but I'm into textbooks. And then I just got put into the, it's called California Ethnic and Multicultural Archives at UC Santa Barbara. So they collect work by, you know, the Black Panthers, um, Galleria de la Raza, which is going out of business now, unfortunately. Um, Rene Yanez, who just died, uh, and he's he was the lead curator and the founder of the Dia de los Muertos at Somarts. Mm. Have you gone to Somarts? Yes, I haven't seen that show yet, though, so I'm going to have to make another trip really soon. And I love doing art exhibitions at Somarts. A huge, massive space. I've done a place of her own twice there, and it allows the artist breathing room to just imagine as big as they want uh, we just have to raise money for it but mm-hmm. that space is a miraculous space in the bay area it's it's huge it's two huge warehouses and they are multicultural so 
running Asian American Women Artists Association, it's hard to find space to do shows in because we're not just Chinese, we're not just Japanese, we're everything under the sun and there's no space for Asian Americans to do, to put art on the wall. So we have to scrap and scrape and find places. I'm sorry, I'm not answering your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I feel like you're touching on a lot of other things though. And, um, and also just space in the Bay Area too, finding long-term partnerships that enable the project to sustain and places to show yeah. and, um, You've mentioned a few times to work on uh, grants as funding, and I think all of those things provide insight into how um, this all comes together and um, how you've been able to keep it going. Yeah, and so I still have my art studio in San Francisco, which I will not give up. And I thought I could start my practice up here in Marin, where I'm in San Rafael, but mm -hmm. it's the artists are different up here, and I was hoping to find some hungry artists that wanted to get space together, you know, hungry to show and hungry to get together, but it's not, it's not, unless someone's listening who's in San Rafael. Yeah, reach out and we'll get you connected. <laughs> yeah. Because most people have big enough houses up here, I guess they just work out of their house, but I hmm. grew up in a culture in San Francisco where people get together because they want a community of artists and um, they want to show, they're hungry to show their work, but it's different up here. So I still identify as a San Francisco artist. Mm -hmm. uh, and for those those wondering, where can we find your work online? Well, just my name, easy, Cynthia Tom, T-O-M dot com, just Cynthia Tom dot com. I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. Oh, it's Cynthia Tom. And then a place of her own is a place of her own dot org. And then uh, Instagram is, I don't know why I did this, but it's place SF for some reason. <laughs> I didn't do a All place right. of her own. So that's it. And I'm in San Francisco. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being, for being a guest on thank our you, show. Liz. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you. And for, for putting your work out there and. Thank you. Yeah, there's been so many beautiful connections that have happened through this, and we're excited to get to know artists who may not have been on our radar, and I think opening it up to suggestions from the community at large has introduced us to so, many, so much great work throughout the Bay and all over the West Coast, so it's been really exciting to tap into that too. After what I appreciate talking to you guys is that you're honoring the artist's process and not the artist's success sales-wise. Because a lot of times that's what a lot of these websites focus on is how to sell your art, how to sell your art. But if you don't do that kind of art, does that mean you're not successful? Yeah. So I appreciate. I feel like there's such a, a limited view of what it means to be successful as an artist. And I think just being able to make your art is a successful artist, like being able to take yeah. the time to do it. It's it you know it doesn't have to pay all of your bills or get you into you know major galleries. It's just being able to create the work and put it out into the world, or or even just make it for yourself. <laughs> I'll drown in it. And that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of our episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. 
If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here. So I feel like you guys are listening because this is, maybe it was divine that we got together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>